Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Dan. <laughs> that was really quite nice. I had to with, think about it for a uh, second. Uh, with Tamson and Dan, read the paper. You comfortable? I am. Make, as yourself, a, make yourself at home. Uh, as much under the circumstances, under the glare of the hot lights and the pressure that goes along with these broadcasts, I'm comfortable in that okay. context. Good to know. Yes. Uh, it's August 11th. Sunday, August 11th. Uh, Only the most beautiful day of the year. Yes, 2019. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful It's been day. a nice summer weather-wise in many ways. I know there was rain, but the last few weeks, pretty good. Well, it was pretty hot. Yeah. Some people were losing their temper in okay. the heat. Oh, my God. And the humidity. Tanson, don't beat yourself up, okay? Uh, yeah, like it was me. I'm from the South, you know. Oh, yeah, you're a Southern girl. I keep uh, forgetting. And so it's it's been a big week of re-entry. Lots of laundry, okay? Yeah. And, That's what uh, I hear. Yeah. But we need to acknowledge one birthday in the past. Bob's, my older brother Bob's birthday, August 7th. Happy birthday, Bob. Happy birthday, Not Bob. Not that I didn't call him and send him a card, but happy birthday, Bob. Right. And we're not going to say his age. No. It's, but we can say it. It's it would, not, take, it would he, take too long. He's not in the triple digits yet. No, not yet. No. Not yet. Just a matter of time. Uh, yeah. So uh, here's what's going on. The biggest story in New York, as everybody knows, is the New York Metropolitan Baseball Club, the Mets. The Mets, who two weeks ago were an embarrassment uh, that no one would dare speak their support for the Mets, have uh, turned it around in a totally unpredictable way. They won seven games in a row, and they lost, and they won eight games in a row, which resulted in 15 out of 16 wins. They lost today, bringing them not back to earth, but somewhere in, I'll call it the stratosphere, from the ionosphere. Uh, they're in heady place now. Uh, they got a long way to go before the season ends and see if they make the playoffs. But it's kind of crazy. And um, it's just weird how quickly it turns around. Uh, you know, people wouldn't go to the games. And all you'd hear is criticism of the Met management. And over the last few games, and you've witnessed this, Tamsin, you've got a capacity crowd in the stands, standing and cheering every pitch. They have some improbable comebacks, some big home runs. And uh, the most visually striking was on Friday night when they had a huge comeback and Michael Conforto got the big hit in the ninth inning and he had to keep running after he hit first base while his teammates trailed him to mob him and tore his uniform, uniform shirt off and he was shirtless running around. And it was a crazy scene and the crowd going nuts and the headline in the New York Post was Streakers. The Mets were streaking, and Michael Conforto was streaking without part of his clothes. So it's... Uh, fair weather fans. There's a, that all fans are fair weather, except me. Yes. But um, Well, I'll so take it. the new pitcher is actually coming through? Yes, the new pitcher as well. The, the Mr. New, Stroman? He's coming through. The The new reliever they got uh, is still terrible. What's it's a, his name? Uh, Diaz. The, uh, the truth is that... Um, uh, Brody uh, Van Wagenen, their Wagenen, their uh, their new GM, who was previously an agent and it was a controversial choice, but he looks the part. He's a bright Stanford graduate, previous player. Um, everything about him is young, appealing executive, and he was going to be a new model for GM. And he started out by making a very big bold trade for Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz. They gave up two minor leaguers. And as it stands right now, this is the worst trade in the history of Major League Baseball. <laughs> and notwithstanding that, by virtue of some unexpected uh, positive performances from lesser players, some of which he signed, many of which he didn't, and uh, and picking up Mr. Stroman, Marcus Stroman, um, they look like they could contend. 
So we shall see. So it's an exciting time. We don't have to draw conclusions right now. But it's just nice, as they like the call, call play, to play meaningful baseball in August and September. That's well, all the Mets you, try. The people on the TV are saying nice things about the 82-year-old pitching coach. Well, that's, well they might. They're holding him responsible. Uh, he deserves some credit, I believe. He, he still has to trade out Mr. Diaz. That will be the biggest challenge. There may be a language barrier there. But what I find most remarkable about that is that you saw a piece about him which said just a, a year ago or so, just before the Mets hired him as the pitching coach, that he had sort of a part-time position in baseball, which allowed him to moonlight to some degree as a clothing salesman, and that they had clips of him, if I recall your description correctly, of uh, fitting someone for clothing, like a men's warehouse or something. Is that right? Yeah, no, it's a smaller place than that, but yes. Crazy. Can you tie that in? I, I, Where were you going with that? It doesn't make any sense to me. That's not. This is the the New York Mets are a major league baseball team. They're relying on this fellow for pitching expertise, and he's trying to sell suits. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. Daniel, what did I explain to you last week? What? Everything is about being able to sell. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so you this can, guy is an excellent salesman. If you can sell okay? suits, you can sell. You can sell um, how to an pitch. Ideology about how to pitch. You can sell the pitchers. You can sell the game. Uh, it's all tied in. If the next time they go on a road trip, all these guys are wearing three-piece suits. I will know that they're on their way to something. He's, he's probably making them feel good about themselves. Okay. Well, listen, uh, I'm all for that. I'm all for that. So we're excited about that. Uh, but <laughs> you had uh, an article about uh, dance crazes. Yeah, Wall Street Journal um, review section. This is a review of a book called Everybody's Doing It by Dale Cockrell. And uh, it starts out, the review starts out with a quote from uh, Davy Crockett's first visit to New York City in 1835. And uh, he has discovered the drinking cellars of the Five Points. And this is what Davy Crockett said in 1835. Such fiddling and dancing no one ever saw before in this world. I thought they were the true heavenborns, black and white, white and black, all hug em snug together, happy as lords and ladies. Okay, wow. that's 1835. Davy Crockett? Davy Crockett, um, and uh, goes on to kind of give you a picture of the dancing and the music during this period uh, in um, uh, in New York, eighteen forty to eighteen seventeen. Everybody's doing it. The subtitle is "Sex, Music, and Dance in New York, eighteen forty to nineteen seventeen." Wow. Okay. And uh, there's a quote here. Few, if any, decades in the history of American dance featured a wider array of wildly provocative dances than in the 1910s. In 1912 alone, investigators identified such species as the hoochie-coochie, the grizzly bear, skirt and muscle dancing, and an airborne exhibition dance in which a female was twirled clinging to her partner's neck. Okay. And if you want to see some of this, yeah. there's actually a clip uh, that you can see online of a, a 1902 film 
showing a tough dance at McKirk's, in which Sailor Lil begins whirling while her partner Kid Foley's hands slide down her backside. And, uh, you know, they do all this dancing, and it culminates in both dancers tossing themselves in on the floor and rolling over and over on each other. 1902. Wow. So it was quite something going on. I mean, we tried to, you know, we make all a fuss about how the young people are dancing hmm. and, uh, you know, the obscenity of it all today. And uh, really, you know, uh, apparently uh, in the late 1800s, they could give these kids a run for their money. Now, this is an interesting book, and uh, it uh, follows up uh, another book uh, by this same Dale Cockrell, Demons of Disorder, Early Blackface Minstrels and Their World, from 1997. And the sort of uh, thing that binds these together is the interracial aspect of the music and of the dance. And uh, in the 19th century, um, we have examples here of a pretty integrated, uh, you know, uh, musical and dance life in these sort of, you know, underground places, uh, you know, uh, the drinking cellars, the brothels, etc. Um, the races were mingling, and that's where this uh, amazing music was flourishing, and that's where dance was flourishing. All of that comes to a blinding halt uh, in uh, the early 1900s, um, and it's a, you know it's a somewhat complicated story. But uh, these a lot of these places are shut down on the grounds of morality, mm-hmm. and that morality kind of seems to focus more on interracial mixing than actually on prostitution, etc. And uh, once, um, you know, they put pressure on these different, uh, you know, facilities, including the one of the most famous ones was Marshall's Hotel, which was on West 53rd and had a very lively music scene. And it was sort of a black establishment, it sounds to me, uh, looking into it a little bit in, you know, that, uh, you know, white, uh, all kinds of people would frequent people interested in music or people just interested in, you know, other people or dancing or whatever. And uh, they put pressure on Marshall to, um, uh, to sort of segregate it. Mm-hmm. And so it's this institutional, institutionalized, uh, forced morality that uh, begins to craft this segregation uh, in New York when, you know, naturally, integration seemed to be uh, kind of happening and flourishing. And there's a backward leap here. Uh, That kind of uh, also forces the music into, and, you know, sort of out of this, what the author calls a demimonde economy, into a public, big space, segregated experience. And uh, we seem to lose something there. And it seems to take, you know, years for, you know, the magic of that sort of black jazz Mm -hmm. uh, phenomenon to work its way back. So it's an 
It sounds like a very interesting story, and it sounds like, you know, it would be, you know, interesting to read about. We have our images of what people were like, mm-hmm. you know, in 1890, and I don't think we know a freaking thing. Yeah, uh, weird. I think, uh, it would be uh, a worthwhile read. The, the guy seems like a very interesting person, Cockrell, and there is a... I seem to know that name. I don't know why. Uh... Well, his life is interesting. He grows up in rural Kentucky... Where he says, uh, as this author, as the uh, reviewer Joseph Horowitz points out, um, stereotypes notwithstanding, he had a much more integrated social life yeah. in Kentucky than he found when he moved up north later. Yeah, I can see um, that. So, uh, so everybody's doing it. All right. Interesting book. All right. So continuing in the sports vein, just quickly, uh, the Giants uh, are in turmoil, maybe. Why are they in turmoil? Because the football Giants, as they get ready to play exhibition games in anticipation of the new season, the Giants have, there's a real focus on their quarterback situation. They drafted with the number six pick, Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones played at Duke. Uh, Not everybody liked that pick. Um, or put another way, everybody hated that pick. And uh, they thought there was another fellow from Ohio State they might have drafted. They thought the Giants picked them too early. They thought they should have picked a quarterback the previous year, namely the Jets quarterback, Sam Darnold. And uh, there's an interesting profile of, of uh, Daniel Jones in the Times. And uh, it is not a huge surprise, but the story is he's a huge football geek. He grows up in a very tight family. They're all pretty athletic. He's always been a selfless type guy. He's always been very studious, and he's been studious about more than anything, football. So starting with fourth grade in Pop Warner football, he's been watching film. He's been diagramming plays. He's the ultimate football geek. That wouldn't mean much except for the fact that late in his teen years, he grew to be six foot five, 220 <laughs> pounds, and he's able to dunk a basketball backwards. So much so, he's so athletic that uh, he played on a uh, travel team coached by the uh, Jay Billis, who's the NCAA commentator, used to play for Duke. He's on the networks now. Uh, his son was playing with Daniel Jones. He said Daniel Jones could have played Division One basketball, possibly even for Duke. And yet, uh, it, what happened was he had some injuries in high school. He was going to go to Princeton. I don't know if you remember hearing this. He was going to no. go to Princeton, and uh, his high school coach said, that's not the right level of competition. This kid's too good. So he sent... <laughs> films to uh, the coach of Duke, a fellow named David Cutlip, who was famous for developing quarterbacks, in particular two fellows named Manning. And uh, Cutlip looked at the film and he wrote this guy back. He said, do me one favor, show this film to nobody else. Uh, Duke reached out, took him. He gladly left the idea of going to Princeton. He played at Duke in a program which was not great. Um, in four years, there has only been one player draft from Duke the last four years. His name is Daniel Jones. No one else goes in the pros from Duke, and yet he's the diamond in the rough the Giants think exists. He doesn't have great stats, but he had terrible receivers, bad line, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and yet, uh, not everybody sees it that way. So the story starts with Daniel Jones going to a local... Uh, uh, ice cream seller in North Carolina. And the guy's very excited seeing that Zion Williamson of Duke is going to the NBA, hoping the Knicks draft him. Daniel Jones' uh, family says, oh, you know, uh, you follow the other New York teams besides the Knicks? The guy says, yeah, the Giants. Why'd they take that guy, Daniel Jones? Dumbest pick ever. 
And Daniel Jones doesn't say anything. And his sister says to him after, why don't you say anything? He said, you know, it's not important. Who cares? Uh, he's pretty level-headed. And anyway, enough about Daniel Jones. Here's the deal. So the Giants play their first exhibition game Thursday against the Jets. And guess what happens? Daniel Jones is great. He's great. And he, play, he plays one series. Can we tell that on, on one series? He's I mean, great in the game. I'm not saying right, he's going to be great. great. He throws five passes. They're all complete. Brings the team down for a touchdown. They're all great passes. And in the space of three minutes, the Giant fans go to talk about Fairweather fans. This is a disaster, too. This guy is great. But now the problem is he should play instead of Eli Manning. So, so Gettleman, the GM, can't win. What? Right. So You know what? What? In the helmet? Yeah. He pretty much looks like Eli. That's what everybody says. He yeah. looks like yeah. Eli. <laughs> and, and, of course, he's had the same coaching. <laughs> yes. But people criticizing, they said, you know something? He could play Eli Manning in the movie. That, that's, also the, <laughs> that's the biography of Peyton Manning. Because no one's making a movie about Eli Manning. So we'll see. But in any event, it's, uh, it's going to be controversial no matter what. And he's we'll just, see. Uh, you know, yeah. I think it'll be good. He's just Eli 2.0. He's Eli 2.0 with maybe a little more athletic ability. Okay. But is he interested in antiques? I mean, that's what, you know. No. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll learn more. Um, all right. So uh, I have an article you passed to me uh, from Today's Times about uh, the end of shopping as social discovery by Gina Belafonte. Um, and uh, it's talking about the demise of Dean and DeLuca Which is and sad. Barney's. It's sad. Well, mostly okay. Dean and DeLuca. So Barney's, uh, you know, has a long, long history. Um, I, did, didn't you go there when I bought still my, like kind of a discount place? I bought my bar mitzvah suit at Barney's. And you uh, kind of standing on a box. I stood on a box yeah. and they measured the length of the pants. So it was, it, it, was a, it was a discount place. It was a discount place. It was place, down sure. and dirty. Yeah, Lower uh, East Side. Right. Uh, and so, uh, and then it became... Quite she she yes, uh, and it was the cool place. Do you know why? When when because, I was I because of the way I looked in that bar mitzvah. Apparently, say. yes, apparently yeah. I know, and it's it's started selling women's clothing. Mm-hmm. They were famous for you know very avant garde windows. Oh yeah, uh, and it was uh, you know it was a very it was much too cool a place for me to ever buy anything. But uh, you know it was quite the it was an elegant store. It was an elegant store, and it really served, you know, all of us uh, young upstart, uh, um, you know, business people yeah. trying to look sharp. Right. Um, and so, and then, uh, you know, now it's kind of run its course. Well, you know, it's a lot. You, you expand. It's acquired. It's you know, there's debt. There's uh, and and also they have a terrible real estate situation. They're a midtown location. Oh, yeah. yeah. I guess their rent went up to uh, 30 zillion, million bucks. Yeah, a zillion dollars. Seems There's a lot seems of like reasons. Lot. It's complicated. Um, but- then there also there's Dina DeLuca's, uh, which uh, in this article mentions that when Dina DeLuca opened on Prince Street in 1977, three years after New York Magazine declared Soho the most exciting place to live in New York, Donald Judd, the artist, the sculptor, uh, began doing his weekly grocery shopping there. Okay, so it's telling you a couple of things. Now, of course, Soho is still pretty cool, but it's, you know, passe. Right. Um, there are many more uh, more exciting up-and-coming uh, Manhattan places to be. But the Dean and DeLucas of that time was an exquisite store. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, like other stores in Soho, a gallery. Yeah. It was a gallery of foods, right. and uh, people were just waking up to this uh, concept of, you know, kind of exquisite 
food and uh, even the vegetables were perfect and artfully arranged and they had a wonderful bread uh, stand and uh, exquisite cheeses etc and uh, you know and uh, carefully curated chocolates cookies um, you know uh, housewares in the back I can't say we ever bought much there. It was like a food but museum. I, think, I remember yeah. being there with you. But you would go in and look around. But they also had a lot of imported goods, which was, I think was interesting. Right. They had wonderful you know, salamis and sausages right. and, uh, and also prepared foods that you only heard of people eating in Europe. And now you know, these were things you could get in New York. Now, there were other great food stores in New York, right? Balducci's. Right. Well, uh, Balducci's Fairway, was the most Sabars, similar, I think. Balducci's was something, no, but it wasn't no, as elegant. Fair, I think Balducci's was more on uh, the model of... Um, uh, Fairway? Little Italy. Yeah. Okay. And uh, marketplaces from there. This was exquisite. Yeah. So, you know, now it's owned uh, by a Thai... Real estate, as uh, as one does, as, as often happens, and, and there are millions of these. I mean, it's no surprise. There's 22 stores yeah. uh, all over the world. It's run its I went into a little Dean and Deluca kind of, um, you know, pick, pick up takeaway food spot in uh, the 40s, and it was not interesting at all. Yeah. You know, I didn't see one thing I was interested in eating. Um, so it's all changed. It doesn't have the sort of artistic vision uh, that you can have with, uh, you know, a couple of partners and a vision. So it's, it's a different place. And I think you were saying before, things run their course. Right. And uh, um, this article seems to imply that, you know, all the usual stuff. Now with the internet, um, we don't shop the way we used to shop. We're too, inf- we all want to have what is the latest, greatest. We're not interested in new stuff as just being, you know, on trend with everybody else. Uh, I, you know, I don't think it's about that. I think uh, it's about turnover mm-hmm. and personal vision and inspiration, and other things are taking its place. Right, other things and are taking We won't place. know about them until they've been bought by some. Thai real estate. Those are the people who run the world. All right. So, but it is sad. I miss. I miss that. No, but there's a, it will be replaced by it, something. It was else. aspirational. Someday, yes, we could eat we, stuff. We could, from we could shop, shop from there. We could afford to buy their stuff. It wasn't cheap. Um, so here's something for those of you who feel you've missed out in terms of a baseball career. There was the story of Nathan Patterson. Nathan Patterson. Uh, played high school baseball and then uh, had some injuries and, you know, just sort of aged out. And uh, he ended up uh, getting into software sales and uh, he's in his early 20s and he goes to uh, a Colorado Rockies game and during a, a rain delay, he goes to the what's called the Speed Pitch Challenge booth where you get to throw the ball and they tell you how fast you're throwing it. And he, did, you, did you dump somebody in the water, or no? You know, there's no dumping in the a water. Teddy bear or it's a little anything? more serious than that. But they have a big number that shows his, you know, miles per hour behind him when you throw. And he throws the first pitch at 90, and the next pitch at 94, the third pitch at 96. Sounds like a young Dan Abuhoff. And it well, yes, it does. And then uh, this goes viral, and he is two days later signed by the Oakland Athletics to play in their baseball system in the minor leagues with the hopes that he'll be a major leaguer, all because he threw balls during a rain delay in a Colorado booth. And uh, you look to yourself to, wow, what? 
what is that all it takes what is i understand 96 miles per hour and so here's here's what's really going on here and the answer is it's almost it's almost that that's the true story close enough that it's still pretty weird it, the true story is that there's a guy named rob friedman who's known as what's called the pitching ninja who has had a, a website that he uh, it's all about pitching and those who are really into baseball and into pitching and maybe pitchers themselves have been looking at this website for the last couple of years in which he actually shows film of what are called the filthiest pitches the most impressive pitches that you see in the major leagues the balls darting a particular way or throwing at a particular speed and he even has people talking about how you throw these pitches what grip you use, what techniques you use, and you can imagine you have a following on that basis. Well, I'm he trying be- to imagine. Yes, he became aware that uh, there was there were pitchers out there at all levels, be they high school, college, or whatever, or even minor leagues, who can throw the ball every once in a while, 100 miles an hour or so. And he established a uh, special website, a separate website called Flat Ground, where he would feature these guys. And Nathan Patterson came on his radar. And he sent him some video of, of uh, Patterson. Patterson sent him some video of him using one of these uh, pitching machine mile per hour things during a minor league game. So in other words, there's, there's a backstory here. But uh, Patterson was was clearly doing this, and he encouraged him to keep doing it. And uh, Patterson had a little bit of a following by the time he had the experience in Colorado. And he hit 96, and as soon as he hit 96, the scouts called. So... Bottom line is, uh, this is true. I mean, if you can throw, I don't mean you two times, anybody can throw 96 miles an hour. Uh, you don't need to have that much of a baseball pedigree. You don't need a bunch of coaches. You just need the radar gun. And uh, if it can be confirmed that it's all valid and all legit, there's a good chance someone's going to go out and sign you, in this case, the Oakland Athletics. So I think it's time for us all to start warming up. And see what we can do in the case of... Well, Daniel, there's a lot more to uh, being a pitcher... There is. ...than, uh, you know, one or two fast pitches. There is. Uh, There is. You got to have strength, stability... Control. Uh, you got you, you got to have durability. And the Oakland you know, there, Athletics. There's, a lot, there's yeah. a lot more to it than that. Well, I, I mean, it's th- interesting that you're expanding the possibilities of recruitment, and uh, I guess it's expanding this whole, you know. Statistics kind of focus. Right. What is the name for that again? Uh, flat ground. But, but he, he, here's the thing. Oh, oh, you're talking sabermetrics. Yes. But here, here's the thing. Uh, Oakland knows this. Oakland Athletics know this. They're saying this guy throws 96. We'll teach him how to pitch. Maybe. I mean, they're not taking a huge risk. I don't think it's a huge contract. Yeah. We shall see he'll succeed. Do I think we'll ever see him in the major leagues? No. Mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. But... You know, there's an old saying in basketball, which is, uh, you know, you, you can't teach height. Uh, if, if someone comes in, they have a particular characteristic that is hard to come by in basketball's height, in baseball's the ability to throw fast, you've got something. Right, but you have to have consistent production. And uh, that's what they're you going know, to be working on. That's what Nathan Patterson's uh, working in, on right day now. Out. You it's, know, it's one thing to do it as a lark. It's another thing to do it for a J-O-E. All right, all right. You are a skeptic. We shall see. Just yeah. remember the name Nathan Patterson. It's easy to remember. Not too many Nathans in, in the uh, major leagues. We'll see how he does. You'll be out there testing your arm. All right, so here's an article that uh, you kept bringing up. Um, and it's about... Meat, of course. Uh, in the New York Times this week in the food section, and the the title of it is "Vegetarian No More." Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, 
it's just interesting because these are this story is all about butchers right okay and all of these butchers are people who used to be vegetarians and now they're you know, butchers and now they've gone to the dark side uh, and uh, are uh, promoting uh, better practices in butchering meat uh, you know for, they've had various revelations one person they cite Janice Schindler who was a vegan for five years and now is general manager of the Meat Hook Butcher Shop in Brooklyn. And you know the Meat Hook. Um, yeah, I do. You do. Uh, because uh, I used to have a son Noel yeah, right. lived near there and they shopped there. Before they went to California. And, uh, yes. you know, um, anyway, she actually saw the light um, one Thanksgiving when she signed up for a, um event at a local farm called Kill Your Own Thanksgiving Dinner. She said it was really morbid. She was the only one person who signed up. And it was all about, um, you know, butchering a turkey. And uh, this this woman was actually stunned, and uh, she thought it was fascinating. And uh, from then on, she was off to the races. I bring this up because... We have a turkey who's been hanging around Dixon's uh, bird feeder right. here in Limeport. Yeah. And uh, Dixon's quite infatuated right. with this turkey. And indeed, she is a cutie. And uh, she strolls along our um, stone wall uh, looking for snacks, I guess. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're wondering if she's going to stick around till Thanksgiving or not. But, uh, you know, she looks pretty savvy to me. I don't I don't think we're going to see her then. But anyway, so back to these uh, vegetarians. And the idea here is uh, they are promoting better practices. They, you know, um, they have various reasons for going back to meat. For one woman, it, it was a health thing. She actually, uh, she was working in Europe at a certain point, and uh, she ends up, you know, Europe is not the most uh, vegetarian-forward society as a whole. She goes back to eating meat, and she says, as soon as I started eating meat, my health improved. I lost weight. My acne cleared up. My skin got better. Well, this is anecdotal evidence, and we have just as many friends who will tell you that when they became vegetarians... Their skin got better, their you know health improved, etc. Yeah. So we can't take this too seriously. But it, it is interesting, you know. They do say all of these people agree that the you know the commercial meat operations are horrific. Right. Uh, they're they're inhumane, um, and what they are promoting is raising you know better, healthier animals, treating them humanely and uh, to the extent that it's possible, um, butchering them humanely. And uh, so they, um, it's a variety of men and women here. And uh, they um, are, as a result, they've been harassed by all kinds of uh, animal rights activists, etc., which, which I think is understandable, but but they are mystified. They are saying, but we are trying to improve. Yeah. I found that persuasive. I was, you know, I feel like we should discuss where we're buying our meat and where we could buy our meat if we could yeah. buy it in, in a more of a, a more enlightened place, which doesn't use chemicals or doesn't use 
uh, antibiotics in terms of how they feed the the cows and stuff. Uh, we can talk about that. I don't know yeah. if Whole Foods is the answer to that or not. You think of them as somewhat of the answer, but I don't know. So, and one of the people they talk about, Anya Fernald, who was one of the founders of uh, Belcampo Meat Company, um, puts it this way, cheap meat isn't a win. I want people to spend the same amount on meat as they do now, but buy better meat and buy less of it. They're eating, you're eating less meat, but better meat. And uh, if the animals are raised uh, on better uh, feed, etc., cetera, uh, it's better for the environment. It will probably be better for your health. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also, you know, uh, also getting away from feeding them the antibiotics, etc. Um all is for the better. And the trick is, of course, having it be tasty. Look, I mean, I think it's uh, food for thought, so to speak. I mean, I think it's, uh, I think we ought to talk about that. But uh, it was an interesting very twist, first isn't it? That uh, these are vegans and vegetarians yeah. who have They're quite serious about taken it. Up They're not doing it to make a living. Yeah. Uh, and uh, are trying to improve... The practice. Well, look, just quickly, there's an article on the Times called When Harleys Whisper, Will Riders Listen? What does that mean? That means that uh, sales of motorcycles are down, uh, including of Harley-Davidson's. Oh, thank God. Yes, they're a pain in the ass. You know, we, we, we were out on our bikes today, yeah, we're, and the we're, motorcycles were tough. Well, they were whizzing by, They yeah. were just... Uh, you they're know, loud. They're annoying. They come well, a little close to you. Well, they're kind of aggressive. Yeah. Um, they yeah. really, clearly, I mean, we're sort of used to not in, all in them. the U.S. Not all of them, but many, them. many drivers of cars and many motorcycle riders don't want to see any bikes on the road, yeah. any bicycles on the road. And uh, so it was a little rough today. Well, you remember yesterday, the guy, the guy approaching us, the motorcycle passed the car. And a double yellow line, who was in our lane for a second. Yes, coming and then straight back, at the two then of us. And buzzed back and just missed it. I mean, it... Double know. yellow line. Right. Anyway, uh, but again, that's we'll call that anecdotal evidence too. But the point is that motorcycle sales are down. And the question is, uh, what can they do about that? And one uh, approach is to develop uh, electric-powered motorcycles instead of having uh, a gas engine. And if you go to an electric motorcycle, and it will be like powered like an electric car, you go to those uh, stations and you you know, put the uh, charger in and that sort of thing. And it has the same issues in terms of range and how long it takes to charge. But a little easier for a motorcycle because it's a smaller vehicle. But what the new vehicle will not have is the sound, right? It won't be a Harley Davidson. It won't be this chopper that makes this huge noise. It's just going to be quiet. And Can you do that again? That was pretty good. Uh, later. But the point is... It's uh, so that, you know, what are people buying? Will it work? So I didn't feel equipped to ask, answer this question. So we asked Armand Evers, our bartender and expert on motorcycles, will it work? Uh, will people uh, who drive Harleys be interested in an electric motorcycle? And he said, uh, no, he didn't have much problem with that. It's pretty easy for him. That uh, a great deal of the cachet think, is uh, in the sound. Exactly right. He said, look, Harley's... Uh, I've never I, been great motorcycles. Right. I said to him, hey, in the article, will handle even better. It'll be great. He says, no one cares how a Harley handles. Harley handles poorly. <laughs> People ride Harleys are not looking for a motorcycle that handles. They're, They're looking, looking for an for experience. The, the, uh... They're looking to have attention being brought to them, yeah. whatever it is. And they want a big, aggressive, uh, macho-like, uh, noisy machine. And this would be, you know, antithetical to that. So forget it. So forget it, Harley. 
You heard it here first. It's just not going to work. Armin says it's not going to work. All right. But here's something that might work. Yes. Frizzante. Yes. Uh, article in the Wall Street Journal. Actually, last weekend, um, but we're a little bit slow. We were not getting all manners of communication no. on Block Island. Not getting uh, internet, right. We were not getting uh, a full complement of newspapers. We were not getting uh, digital versions of the newspapers, etc. So we're still catching up. And uh, Letty Tig, uh, their wine specialist, has an article about semi-sparkling, entirely delightful. And uh, she's basically talking about... Um, uh, Wines like Vino Verde, uh, Chacolina, uh, Lambrusco, uh, all these fun wines that are produced by the Charmat method, which is, um, you know, they are fermented in a big tank. And there's some CO2 in there, so they have a little bit of a buzz on it. Not as bubbly as Champagne mm-hmm. uh, or even Prosecco, but... Uh, you know, a little bit of a tickle or slightly more than that. These wines have been my favorite for years. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure I said this before. I accidentally discovered Lambrusco uh, years ago when I was in Rome for a summer and bought a bottle at the local grocery store, not knowing what it was. And um, then uh, opened it up. It was red wine that had a little bit of a bud you know, a little bit of bubble to it. Mm-hmm. And it turned out in a hot Roman summer, mm-hmm. that's delightful. Mm-hmm. These are juicy wines. They're meant to be consumed immediately. They rarely even have vintages attached to them. Okay. And and they're not super deluxe and they tend to be inexpensive. Now, there are a lot of fun Vino Verdes around from Portugal. Uh, just, you know, they're low in alcohol. 10, 11 percent. And then uh, Lambrusco's similar as well. Lambrusco's are harder for people to get their head around in the U.S. because they're red and they're served chilled and they're a little bit bubbly, but they're dry. So you were they're fruity, yeah. but they're dry. But you were drinking one last night. I was drinking. Actually, what I was drinking last night is pretty interesting. It was a... Uh, Bottle from Maryland, actually, Westminster, Maryland, uh, from the old Westminster winery called Petalant Naturel Feed Blend. They call it their Piquette. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it was a bubbly uh, red wine. Um, almost looks a little cloudy. Uh, you you saw it when we poured. No, so I taste it. One of the interesting things about it is, you don't need the big fat champagne cork right. that you have because it's less pressure. So it can have like a bottle cap, like a you know basic crown yeah, cap, yeah, yeah. or you know um, just a normal cork, or maybe even a screw top. Right. Uh, so that's kind of interesting, and um, so. It blew my mind that this was from Maryland, okay? And it's this kind of European style of wine. I looked up on the website. They also have versions of this in cans, Mm -hmm. okay? Other interesting thing, 7% alcohol. That's not a lot. Which is pretty similar to like a beer. So, uh, you know, very drinkable, very delightful, and fun to drink uh, in the summer. 
Yeah. Okay. That's when you want light. That's when you uh, might want to consume uh, more than one glass. Uh, so let's face it. Yeah. I'm a cheap date. You know, <laughs> I, I these know. are inexpensive wines. They're not terribly sophisticated well, the, the bottle wines, last night, but they're delightful. They yeah. come white, red, rosé. Right. The bottle last night was seventeen dollars. You told me the bottle last and, night was seventeen. And a smaller now, can. Now that is more than maybe you're willing to spend on your average <laughs> bottle of wine. Uh, and <laughs> you're you know, looking at me. Vino Verde is generally, you know, they're like eight or nine bucks, right. really. Um, but it's not. Uh, it's it, not prohibitive. Right. Uh, no, I'm, I'm with you. I think we can go with that. The, uh, all right, just the, number one, two things quickly and then we'll close out. One is, at a, apropos of nothing, the, the, well, actually, the, the journal had a big article about how bad customer service is. And if you're frustrated with customer service from your internet, internet provider and the like, uh, you're with everybody else. Everybody hates that. Uh, and in fact, they listed the, the least, uh, uh, the most negative reviewed industries with respect to customer service and, they are. and general attitude. And they're exactly what you'd expect. Internet, social media, fixed line telephone services, video on demand services, internet service providers. Right, slow down. I can't understand what they're, you're saying. They're just video and subscription television types. Right. They're, right. they're all the worst. Yeah. But here's if you the, go online and try to get hold of somebody. It's always a disaster. It's always a disaster. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but what's interesting to me is the top five. Okay. And, and more particularly, the, just to focus, to move things along, the top one, the top rated industry in terms of customer satisfaction is breweries. Breweries are number one. People like breweries more than anybody else. So in terms of customer... So what kind of customer service do you need with a brewery? Not Call much. up and say, you know, I couldn't get my bottle of beer open. What, what, what other? Give me some other ones. Well, they're... They're, uh, I mean, that's one of those things. That's like on Amazon when something has five stars. All right, all right. And there's two reviews. I don't know if we're going to get it. Number one is breweries. Number two is television and video players. Best, these are industries. Cut top customer satisfaction. Customers think that they're uh, getting good satisfaction from TVs and video players. Number okay. three, personal care and cleaning products. Number four, automobiles and light vehicles. And number five is soft drinks. This is what people think are working out. Their experience with soft drinks are positive. Breweries, number one. Uh, All right, this is a problem. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think this is a good survey. All right, maybe not. The uh, but it, well, but the They're real not the places that were really in need oh, great. of great customer service. Well, that may be the answer. But the all I want to tell you is that your experience and everybody else's experience that's negative with internet service providers and the like. Which is just weird because about 20 years ago, there was all this excitement about improving customer service right. on, on a retail level. Right. Remember Nordstrom's opened up and the big deal was how friendly and outgoing and helpful their staff was. What happened to that? Well, you know something? Uh, try, try to buy something on the internet from Nordstrom sometime. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, they've dropped that uh, yeah. as one of their goals. Yes. Uh, okay, so we will close with the obituary of a fellow named Phil Himes, at the age of 96, that says, Bright light at Saturday Night Live. He was the lighting guy. He was the lighting guy at uh, Saturday Night Live. Since the 70s. Yes, years and years and years. And he's been in the business for a long time. He recently received an Emmy Award, his first since 1965, for outstanding lighting design and direction for variety series. Again, first since 1965, his quote, if I had known it would have come at this frequency, I'd have gotten a bigger display cabinet. Uh, he seems like to be an amusing guy. Yes. Uh, and um, he was a lot of fun, apparently, on the set, doing the lighting of Saturday Night Live. He was not shy about sharing his opinions. 
The Times obit uh, quotes John Mulaney when, uh, about his experience as a writer at SNL. He said he recalls at one point they did some sketch, and uh, when they finished it and he was walking away from the rehearsal, Himes called out to him, not your best work. So when the lighting guy can talk to the talent and say, not your best work, uh, it's amusing. And it's well, nice. Well, so I don't know anything about lighting. Yeah. But I was it. very impressed when uh, they were discussing his lighting of uh, John F. Kennedy right. uh, versus Richard Nixon. Right. And being able to, by virtue of how he can you know, put together the lighting, how he choreographed the lighting, makes uh, JFK look tan, relaxed, um, you know, it, um, engaging. Okay. You know, you know, over and, the years, and, and, and Nixon looks uh, terrible. Nixon looks terrible, well, many, sweaty. Uh, I, I don't know if that's all the lighting, but you've heard this story for years and years. I think it be a lot of the lighting because if you, you, you can, obviously it makes sense, you can shoot somebody so that there's not this highly reflective, you know, um, glare coming from right. uh, their sweat, etc. It It's absolutely conceivable to well, me. Um, but, uh, but what I've heard over the years, many, many times, it's yeah. not narrowed on the lighting, but that as that debate went, Nixon basically lost the election because of that debate. Uh, and people say that people saw it on television, yeah. favored Kennedy, and people heard it on the radio, favored Nixon. Yes, yes. Um, and it's all, you know, uh, at the beginning of the school year, I always show my students a couple of slides yeah. of uh, the same of one person shot with different lighting. Oh, really? In eight different, uh, you know. And they look different? Changes. Not only do they look different, and it's not a matter of, you know, lighting can be used not just to illuminate features, but the way you are lit can actually change the appearance of your personality. Really? Same guy, same pose, same props. On one, he looks like a serial killer. Really? Another, he looks very, you know, fatherly. Another, he looks dashing. I mean, we're used to this. You know how if you're on a sleepover and you want to tell a scary story, you hold the um, yeah, flashlight, flashlight under, under your, your chin, chin right. um, and you look very ghoulish. It's that kind of idea. It doesn't just change your features. It can actually evoke uh, a certain mood or personality. Uh, so lighting is very powerful. Well, Mr. Himes, who passed away, would agree with you. As the Times quotes him in the final paragraph, he says, uh, you can't have lights camera action without lights he told spin magazine you never hear sound camera action right you need lights so uh phil himes passed away sorry about that and uh that's it for this week uh tams and dan read the paper signing off until next week this is dan abuhoff and tamson granger see you again next week